It's been said, and maybe you've said it yourself, that you can be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Have you heard that before? Professor Todd Whitmore of Notre Dame observed that actually being heavenly minded can do a lot of good. After the war in Uganda had dragged on for about 20 years, Whitmore moved into a refugee camp in northern Uganda to hear the stories of the Acholi people. As he observed the Christians who were working amongst the Acholi, uh, he saw what he termed as what real Christianity looks like. He observed that the most practical, the most helpful workers among the Acholi were those who we would term heavenly-minded. He called them people who were reasonable apocalyptists. In other words, they were thinking a lot about God's intervention, particularly at the end of history. And what these people believed that it wasn't about human effort, it was about God intervening in, through them into other people's lives. And as one Christian worker in the camp said, God is tired of this war and suffering and he will intervene. And because they believed that, they believed that their work would be worthwhile. In the United States, people who talk about God's future inter intervention are often termed escapists, impractical, even unstable. But what Whitmore discovered is that these were the most rational people and the ones who were willing to sacrifice. And they kept saying things like, we want to make a difference in the here and now. We want to help with the orphans. Uh, just pan back to when we served at our best. Was it not because we had a larger perspective that we were part of something that was bigger than us? It indeed was the case for Nehemiah and the people of God. They were experiencing, you might say, a lull in the action. 150 years of captivity. And yet, they were somehow led by this man, Nehemiah, who mobilized them to do great things. And that's what we are going to look at in the next week or two. How does God do that through his people? to mobilize other people, to do great things. The first is this. We know that prayer is more than an appendage. You would expect this up front, I hope, but this is certainly the case in Nehemiah's life. Corey Ten Boom gets right to the point when she said, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? See, for Nehemiah, prayer was more than an appendage but it was a vital part of addressing the problem that they had a wall that needed to be rebuilt and they had a beleaguered people. And so Nehemiah commits to praying about this. And we find here in chapter 1 him entreating God. He recognized that this wall was not just for a physical protection, but it was symbolic of God wanting to separate his people from the culture. Not in the sense of that they weren't to be there to love or, or, or be a part of the culture in terms of relationally, 
but not to let the culture dictate to them how they would operate. They would not take upon the culture's philosophies. So the wall was there to remind them, I've got you as my people here. You've got the world out there. Do not take in all those philosophies into your life. There should be a separation. That wall was a physical reminder. But now, it was in rubble. And we have a prayer in Nehemiah 1 that basically represents months of petition on the part of Nehemiah, all of chapter 1. And what I want you to notice are two key elements in this prayer. That Nehemiah is pointing towards the character of God and the covenant of God. The character of God and the covenant of God. Concerning the character of God, he recognizes that he is speaking to the God of heaven. This is not just a a human earthly entity, but the God of heaven, who is great and awesome, who is filled with a steadfast love. In other words, not only is he able to help us, but he is willing to help us. He is great, but he also loves us. How is it that Nehemiah knew these things? Well, he could certainly look at the history of his people, but he could also look at the word that was in front of him. He had some Old Testament scriptures in front of him that he could could read the historical accounts of how God had intervened with his people. And that reminds us of the reality of who God is. See, we often confuse God with our circumstances, don't we? I mean, when things are going great, we say, man, God is an awesome God. God loves me. And then when things go south in our circumstances, uh, God doesn't care. Uh, God is not real powerful. And we, we basically relate our perspective of God directly with our circumstances, and that's a problem. Nehemiah could have easily looked at his circumstances and surmised that God didn't care, that God was not interested in answering his prayer. Instead, he reminded himself of the character of God, and this had a tendency to to boost his faith. I have a list of people I pray for. I have a list of things that I can put there of how God answers the prayer. And it always boosts my face to recount, look how God has moved. And as I, as I read the word, I remind myself, this is who God is. And so as I pray for our people, our church, my faith is kind of given a shove because I'm reminded by that perspective of the word, okay, this is, this is who I'm talking about. I don't just let my feelings or the present circumstances dictate, although I can give God that too. But that doesn't drive the train. How would the frequency and intensity of our prayers be impacted if we were truly convinced that God was great in his power and in his love and eager to intervene on our behalf? Would there be a difference in how we pray? If I were to ask each of you, I mean, all of us would agree with that 
intellectually. But I'm talking about really deep down, you're saying, God really is a great God. And see, not only is he a great God then, he's a great God now for me. He loves me. How would that impact your prayers? Nehemiah says, we are your people, your servants. This is the place where your name dwells. We are the people of God. He's reminding himself. Jerusalem was their home. God was their heavenly father, and nothing was going to change that fact. He's recounting this. This is the starting point. See, when the Jews were taken captive, they were torn from Jerusalem. It was like ripping their heritage from them. And 150 years have passed since they were violently taken taken from their homeland, placed in captivity 800 miles away from Jerusalem. Their hearts are aching. They have a, a, a national spirit that is desperate for the taste of their homeland, at least some of them, because we know that some of them preferred the captivity. They preferred being in captivity because that's what they were used to. That's what they were comfortable with. But for those who understood that God was a great God, they were willing to go back to their homeland and to get to work. History proved their birthright. God worked in their lives before. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. He showed in the past that he was willing and able to intervene. And we know the same thing today. How do we know that we are his people? We certainly have our own experiences that tell us that he intervenes, that he answers prayer. But we also remember, we also read his word, historical accounts of him working in his people, we cannot forget. History has also demonstrated his love for us, his people. He's redeemed us. He has intervened. All these things are used to remind us that we are his people. We are tethered to this great God. Nehemiah is also reaching back to the promise that God made with Moses in Deuteronomy, that he promised to bless his people as they walked in obedience with him. Nehemiah is essentially pulling out all the stops. He's, he's focusing on who God is, what God has promised. And this was a premier expression of his dependence upon God, this kind of prayer. I mean, if prayer is really our dependence upon God, how would you rate your dependence right now in this season? I mean, you know, let's face it. You know, when I need some big bucks, you know, I'm going to pray and ask God to help. I mean, when I maybe get cancer, I'm going to pray for healing. But, you know, throughout the day, regular stuff, I've got this, God. I've got this. I've got this. And we walk proudly. And then we end up like Ronda Rousey, flat on our back, knocked out. Why? Because we thought we could do it on our own. We thought we were tough stuff. Hey, I got this. I got this. Don't worry about me. Next, we choose to be distracted or determined. 
We choose to be distracted or determined. Nehemiah, too, sets in motion a theme that comes up throughout this book about how opposition had come to Nehemiah and the people. And we read in verse 19, specific people who heard about this work, they jeered at the people of God, despised them, and Nehemiah says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. Nehemiah was resolute. Let us arise and build. It says, so they strengthened their hands for the good work. I love the practical nature of that commitment. It wasn't that, you know, we intend to do this. We have a plan. Um, you know, we have this intention. No, they were, <laughs> they strengthened their hands for the work. Give me a brick. Where do you want me on that wall? They were working hard. The people of God strengthened their hands. They wanted to be put to work, committed to the task. I'd love to be there to help you, but no. I'm there. I'm working. I'm giving. Whatever it takes. If there was any doubt to the commitment we read in Nehemiah 4.20, it reminds us that the people of God rallied at the sound of the trumpet. Was this a, a pep rally? They all cheered, waved banners? No. It says in verse 21, we labored. This is, this is how they rallied. We labored at the work. Give us something to do. We labored at the work. Now, many folks might labor if there's something in it for them. I mean, I'll do this, but what's in it for me? It's got to provide some immediate benefit, immediate profit that I have to see. But see, this was a work for a bigger cause. This was bigger than the individual. This was a movement of God's people that represented something far bigger than just one individual. And they were determined to see it through. And God will often put projects in our path, and we can either be determined to lend a hand, or we can say, you know what, I just don't want to be bothered. I mean, really, we're, we're faced with either we could go for comfort, be distracted by comfort or convenience, or we're all in. I mean, just look at the state of many of us now, all right? It is it is an unbearable burden to lose the remote control. I mean, to get up from the couch and change the channel? Seriously? I have to do that now? Wow. It's been discovered that if cows are stressed, before they are slaughtered, they release a hormone that lowers the meat quality. The trick is to slaughter them while they feel safe, at home, and comfortable. Perhaps humans, listen, when we seek comfort and convenience, perhaps then we're most vulnerable. 
Perhaps then we're most likely to lose perspective, a sense of reality. Despite the protests of others, we choose the kind of life we live, right? We choose what kind of perspective we're going to have. We could choose a life that extends beyond ourselves to something greater, something eternal, somehow touching the lives of others in a real and loving way. Or we can choose to be distracted by convenience and comfort. That's not the only distraction. There are other distractions, and I've already alluded to it. Conflict. Conflict can be an ever-present distraction. When Sanballat, the Haranite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, served and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us, despised us, and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Questioning motives, attacking, making fun of. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he'll break down the stone wall. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. They plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. You ever feel like there are others plotting against you? Certainly, it seems like there's a culture going a whole other way than what seems like God's standards would be in, in a multitude of areas. There's outright opposition, persecution for believers. Not because we have some martyr complex. That's just the way it is. More people are being thrown in jail and killed for their Christian faith today than in any other time in human history. Did you know that? But the opposition didn't stop there. I think there's a distraction that's even bigger than that. It's a distraction from those that are closest to you. Now there was an outcry, or arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There are also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Their very own people. We're taxing them. Their very own people they were in debt to, they were now enslaved to. Their own people were taking financial advantage of them. Those closest to them had foisted upon them these burdens. And Nehemiah spoke to that, changed that situation. Didn't stop there. Then we read, moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son, Johanan, had taken the daughter of Meshelam, 
the son of Berechiah. By the way, you can't pronounce these any better. So, um. <laughs> Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. You see what's happening here? The very ones who were wanting to kind of get in and undermine the project, they were related to people who were working on the wall. We're talking about relatives coming against the work of God. Wow. Trying to weaken Nehemiah and the effort to rebuild this wall. Is it not true? I mean, whether, whether it's uh, family, job, ministry, the biggest disappointments and distractions can be from those we assume are going to support us. Right? And it's in the midst of this very personal disappointment that many people give up. I mean, we expected a different response. I thought you were my friend. I am related to you. We expected to be supported. Instead, we got criticism. We got judgment. And not just, you know, constructive criticism. Harsh. Judgment. And these kinds of distractions are demoralizing. And Nehemiah 4.5 says the workers were angry over the hurt and discouragement. And I love that the scriptures did not whitewash this. You see inside of what was going on relationally with, and all the things, the pressures upon these people as they're trying to rebuild. I mean, God's people were hurt and they were discouraged. But let's look at verse 6. But then it says... So we built the wall. The people had a mind to work. We built the wall. The people had a mind to work. Discouragement was no excuse for giving up. They stayed at it. Discouragement was no excuse for giving up. The task at hand was more important than their personal comfort. And in a day when, when the goal of most people is personal happiness and the ultimate crime is getting your feelings hurt, it's a good reminder that the character of people is shown in the midst of disappointment. And the character, listen, people of character continue with their God-given duty in the face of discouragement. In the face of discouragement. You think you're the only one to ever get discouraged? Did you read lately in the biography, autobiography of um, George Bush Sr.? said that, of course, he said, you know, no, nobody's interested in knowing how a president feels, how he's depressed. 
but there were times in his presidency that he was despondent. Of course, we never knew that. But he had to somehow find the strength to continue to be president. Nobody wants to see their president in a fetal position. And leadership called him to continue on the job. Discouraged? Yes. Despondent? Sometimes. But I still have a job to do. And I have to set myself aside for a time, not that I don't address what's in my heart, not that I continue to be unhealthy, but there are times that my feelings and the job don't line up. There are times I'm not always excited, I'm not always motivated, I'm not always loving to be here, but I got a job to do. And I got to do it. The task at hand was more important than the personal comfort. This did not happen in a vacuum. Nehemiah, by his presence, by his example, by his leadership, encouraged the people, steered them towards a bigger picture. Listen, whether you're a parent, whether you're a boss, whether you're a teacher or a spiritual leader, God has given you a position of influence to help people see a bigger picture. And by the way, that's not a lecture. That's coming alongside to encourage. When we are at the task and and discouragement and great disappointment sets in, remember, we have the choice to be distracted or determined. And part of being an image bearer of God is the fact that he has given us as human beings the ability to choose our perspective when we focus on the disappointment and we wallow in that. We choose that. Or we can choose upon, choose the character, the covenant of God, his presence in our life. We choose our expectations of others, right? We choose that. We choose how we're going to respond to the disappointment. Nobody makes me feel this way. Nobody makes me take this attitude in perspective. I choose that. We choose to stay beleaguered or we choose to recognize his presence and work in our lives. Now, I'm not discounting that there are people who have chemical responses. There are people who suffer from clinical depression. That's separate from what I'm talking about here. Winston Churchill said, kites rise highest against the wind, not with it. When we face obstacles, we need to realize that God has not ceased being our rock and support. It's in those times we learn that best. D.L. Moody, perhaps one of the greatest evangelists to ever come out of America, saw his home burned down twice. The YMCA that he started, did you know that? D.L. Moody was instrumental with starting the Young Men's Christian Association. By the way, they don't want to call it that anymore. It's now the family Y. Don't want to put that Christian in there. But 
The YMCA he started in Chicago burned three times. I mean, when we sit nursing our wounds, never addressing the matter of our hearts because of embarrassment, and we are basically MIA, Satan wins, and then there is one less person standing at the wall. I get it. Not every need can be met. I understand that. I get that none of us can do it all. But all of us can do something. All of us can pick up a brick and go to the wall and make our contribution. Time, treasure, talent. We do this because we want to see the work of God progress. We do this because we want to see the people of God encouraged. We do this because we want to see the church of God healthy. So here's your call. Here is your responsibility. You do whatever it takes to put yourself in a position to heal your wounds. And then you pick up a brick and you get to the wall. You know, your wall may be a marriage that needs to be repaired. Your wall may be a need that God has put on your heart, but you have yet to act on it. And now God is giving you the courage. Go do something. The wall may be somehow, some way for you to step up and do a ministry here. When the people of God have their passion aligned with the heart of God and they are united in their commitment to the work of God, then we can say along with Nehemiah 6.16, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Whatever that wall is, Part of the way that God gets glory is that through our discouragement, through our disappointment, through the opposition, we continue on. That gives God glory. That shows us it's not about me. It's about the work that has to be done. And that's how God is glorified. Not when we're sitting in our rooms. Not when we're nursing the wound for years refusing to get back onto the playing field. They perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Listen, the work is too important to give up. And with God's help, we choose to never be out of the fight.